I have um, a weapon in my house. It's not a firearm. I can't, I know I, I'm a Texan, but I can't bring myself yet to that point. I don't think I'll ever own a firearm. But the last line or the only line of defense I have in my home if I ever have a burglar and I happen to be there is a mag light. It's a mag light. And uh, the mag light is about the only thing that I will, um, kind of like Paul Blart, the, the mall cop. That's me. And it's this big, heavy thing, like seven D batteries are inside there. And if you, if you uh, focus the lens, it has this very um, blinding effect. Twofold, although I found out uh, two things about the, the mag light is, yes, it's very blinding. So if there's an assailant in my house, I can blind him and then go. Whoosh. So when I'm at home, I practice this when nobody's looking. Blind and strike. Blind and strike. Um, but um, somebody here who will go unnamed, who is familiar with law enforcement, told me that the danger of that is if you are in a dark house, it becomes an easy target. So um, if you have, any of you have a mag light at home, just be aware that, you know, you become a target. And that's what happens when there's a light in the darkness. That's what happens when there's a light in the darkness. On the one hand, the light becomes a target. You can see the light in the darkness and head towards it. But on the other hand, it also does this thing where it blinds, where it blinds. It simultaneously blinds. And so we're going to talk about that, that kind of subtle dynamic there in three headings in your notes. Um, the first one is clarifying light. Second is transforming light. And third is blinding light. So clarifying, transforming, and then the other side is blinding light. So let's look at scripture. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 1 to 12. Here we go. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Does this, does this question sound familiar? For those of you that um, have been studying the signs of Jesus in your woven groups, we talked about this in sign 5, I believe it was. Sign 5, I want to get this right. Um... No, wrong. Sign 3. It's John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and sign 3. You have um, Jesus speaking to the man who was uh, lame. And then he heals him. And he says, go and sin no longer. So is there a connection between this man's physical condition and sin? Uh, there's, that's a controversial statement. And Jesus clarifies this. He says, no, 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 no. It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents. So he clarifies that. It's not this kind of, it's not this superstitious view that, Something bad's happening to me, therefore it must be because I sin. Now sometimes, as a result of sin, bad things do happen. But, you know, physical disabilities, do we equate that with sin? Jesus says, no, no, no. No. He continues in verse five, 3. I don't know if this is more comforting for you, but he says, no, it, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed. Um, he continues in verse 4. We must work the works of God who sent me as long as it is daytime. Night is coming when nobody can work. While I am in the world, and this is the important statement, he says, I am the light of the world. Reflect on that just for a second. While I am in the world, I, Jesus says, am the light of the world. 
if you were in a forest at night, deep and dark, and you saw one small beacon, what would you do? You'd probably head towards the light. And so in that sense, there's two things about this light that I want to talk about. This light, when he says, I am the light in the world, presumably saying we live in a dark, imperfect world. It's, you know, as, as one English author says it, it was life, life in this world is, is short, brutish, and nasty, brutish, and short. But yet, Jesus says, in the midst of this life, nasty, brutish, and short, and dark, I am the light. I am the light. And so he draws attention to himself. We see the light, but the light does something else because that mag light that I own, yes, I can shine it. I can focus it on somebody's eyes. But if I twist the lens and the beam becomes wider, all of a sudden you can see everything around it. You can see everything around. In other words, that torch illumines everything so that you can see not just the light, the torch, but you can see the world clearly. So yes, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, so we're drawn towards him. But at the same time, as we're drawn towards him and closer and closer to the torch, we can actually see everything around clearly. And this is a piece of doctrine that I'd like to teach this morning. I really work hard to make sure I can give you something practical to take home, but sometimes it's very important also to teach doctrine. Right thinking leads to right action. And this is the Christian doctrine. After revelation comes illumination. After revelation comes illumination. That when God reveals him to you, he says, over here, look, over here, torch, torch. He turns on the light so that we can see it in the darkness. This is God disclosing himself. He reveals. And as a result, like a moth to a flame, we're drawn towards the light. This is the first step. This is where we head towards the light and God reveals himself to us. Revelation. But thereafter, as we come closer, we begin to experience illumination. Illumination, or you can call it inspiration. Illumination, where you see the world clearly, where you understand the Bible all of a sudden. Where all of a sudden the things that those guys up in the front on Sundays talk about, it seems to click. Ah, I get it. This is the, the doctrine of illumination or inspiration where scripture is understood, where not just scripture, but I would say the whole world, just like the torch, you can see everything around you clearly. This is a very subjective experience that I, I can't ask you to take my word for it. You just have to go through it. But when we become Christians... I believe that there comes a moment where everything else, the way the world is, that too becomes clear. That too becomes clear. Our understanding, things that we doubted before, now doubts persist, but we understand so much more. And, you know, I think lots of times people think that when you come to church, you have to check your brain at the door. We have to check our brains at the door. Faith is a place where I just believe and where I shut off everything and I just kind of blindly believe. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's the message of illumination. I think the message of illumination is you come here thinkingly, the gospel shines on our hearts, 
And what happens is we proceed forth into the world understanding better, empowered, equipped. Therefore, it's important not to check our brains at the door, but to all the more actively engage our, th- our, our, our thinking, our understanding. Because if it's true that revelation comes before illumination, that means we have to be thinking Christians and all of life will get transformed by what happens in our one-hour, two-hour reflection here Sunday after Sunday. It is not for us, it is not for us to come here and suspend reason the second we walk through the doors. We ought not suspend reason because I believe that the gospel is very rational. I believe that it is. I believe that it illumines all things. Um, on that, if you look in your notes, there's a quote, a quote by C.S. Lewis that describes what I'm saying. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I can see the sun, but because by the sun I can see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only, because by, not only because I see it, but because by it, I can see everything else. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I believe he's telling this blind man, your eyes will be open, but you're going to see. You're going to see. You're, you're going to see. Something is going to click. C.S. Lewis describes this even further, and I want to attempt to see if I can do this. Hopefully I won't fall over myself. Um, Please be patient, because I think this is an important analogy that he makes. Along with this quote, he says, he makes a comparison between waking and dreaming. How many of you dreamt last night, and you remember it? Anybody? Wow. um, In your dream... I'm not going to ask you to share your dream, but let's say in your dream you dreamt that you sprouted wings and you began to fly. Now when you're awake, you can evaluate that dream. You can say, I understand that dream was meaning, didn't really mean anything. Sometimes dreams sometimes have a deeper meaning. Um, you'll, you'll dream something you're like, oh, that was weird. What does that mean? And so we explore its meaning. But the point is, however fantastical the dream is, only when you're awake in the waking world, can you evaluate the dream? Not vice versa. The waking world can account for the dream world, but the dream world cannot really account for the waking world. The dream world, you can process the dream world, uh, the waking world, but you can't really make heads or tails of what I'm supposed to do tomorrow at work or what really the state of the economy is or um, how I'm going to pay my taxes or get my kids to school. You can't really account for the waking world. Therefore, my question is, which world is more real? The world where you sprouted wings and you flew or the world where obviously you're awake? C.S. Lewis says, clearly, the waking world is more real. Now hang with me here because the point is important. The waking world is more real. Why? Why is the waking world more real than the dream world? For him, it's because when you're awake, you can contain the dream world. You can evaluate the dream world. When you're dreaming, you cannot account and contain the waking world. 
His point is this, and I think it's an important point. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. I've passed from dream to waking. The scientific point of view, it cannot contain, it cannot contain art. It cannot contain music, ethics, morality. Science cannot explain the emotion and the experience, subjective experience of love. The love that I have for my wife after 13 years that only grows stronger. How does science explain that? Well, we'd call it maybe, maybe you know, psychological attachment, which started by firing of some chemicals and some hormones gushed in. You can't really explain emotion. How can science contain art? How can science contain ethics? C.S. Lewis goes so far as to say, how can science even contain science? Because science was founded on the bottom line foundation of question everything. Question everything, and until you can prove it true, then you know it's true. The thing is, we start questioning what is true as well. So the point is, this world where we say, I'll only believe it if I can see it. Give me evidence. Give me scientific proof. He does this interesting thing where he flips it backwards. And he says, that world where everything is just as you see it, just as you believe it, it's rote, it's, 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 it's formulaic. That world is more like the dream world because it can't contain anything else. But the Christian worldview, the theological worldview is more real. Why is it more real? C.S. Lewis says, because the Christian worldview can contain science. In fact, I would argue science was birthed from Christian theology. The Christian worldview can contain ethics. It can contain art. It can contain morality. It can contain so much more. So judge then, C.S. Lewis says, which is more real and which is less real. The Christian worldview is more real, he argues, because by it, you can see everything. That's what he's saying. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, not only do you see him, but by him you can see everything else, and everything else makes sense. When I was in college, I was such a lost soul. I was studying at the New School for Social Research. You can't get more progressive than that in the heart of New York City, Greenwich Village. I didn't know what I believed anymore, but it came to a point where when a conversion came to me, when God revealed himself to me, everything became clear. I understood Descartes and Heidegger better. I understood philosophy. I understood faith. I understood morals. I understood ethics, reason. I understood better because of the Christian faith. I had this fear that if I became a Christian, I know I had this fear if I just started thinking. If I studied, I would lose my faith. No, it's been quite the opposite. The more I've become solid in my faith, the more I've grown as a Christian, the more I've understood the various worldviews. I am not afraid of them anymore. That's what I believe with my whole heart. And I think, I think it is true. I think it is true. That revelation, when we see God... It illuminates all things so that we see more clearly, more confidently. We're not afraid to dialogue. We're not afraid to, 
to talk with people from different backgrounds because we understand more clearly. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, if I have to get up here, my heart and my passion, it's why I suck air, is because I want to give this apologetic to everyone who walks through these doors and say, this is why I'm a Christian. This is why you ought to be a Christian too because it makes sense. It really does make sense. Don't check your brains at the door. The notion of God dying on a cross, there's something, prophetically, um, something profoundly something profoundly artistic about that. The gospel that redeems everything next Sunday, next Sunday for our, our, for our grand opening. I want to make a very strong apologetic for the Christian faith. We're going to be talking about the resurrection. Who believes in that, right? Who among our friends believes in that? But bring them, bring them because... I think we can offer a reasonable case for faith. A very reasonable case. Let's continue on. So that's the doctrine. After revelation comes illumination. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. By him we can see the whole world clearly. Jesus continues in verse 6. He spits on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and he came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. Still others were, others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, It's me. I'm the one. I'm the one. So they were saying to him, How were your eyes opened? How do you see? In verse 11 he answered, The man who is Jesus made clay and, and, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he says, I, I, I don't know. Two things about this. First, it, this play-by-play, -play, kind of this play-by-play -play description, to me sounds, um, from a literary standpoint, it almost sounds like a historical retelling. It sounds like almost in a court of law. In a court of law, I guess, what would you call that? What do you call that? Like a you know, a what? Transcript or just, a, not a confession, whatever. It just sounds like this kind of description. The second thing is that when he says, I don't know where he went, this also sounds like John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, you have a guy that was healed, lame, and then can walk, and they say, where did he go? In John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I don't know. He slipped away. The difference is, that man in sign 3, I don't know, but when he discovers who Jesus is, he doesn't do a very noble thing. He turns Jesus into the authorities. This guy that we're going to read today is so markedly different. And what he does, he doesn't turn Jesus into the authorities. He goes into the court of law and he becomes Jesus' attorney. He stands up for him and he defends Jesus in this court of law. He defends Jesus. Read, let's hear what he does and let's see how remarkably transformed this man is. Second heading, transforming light. This guy is a changed man, transforming light. So, court transcript John chapter 9 verse 13 
So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. <laughs> it's funny. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Um, I can't talk about that. Um, you can look back a few sermons on the podcast to understand why the Sabbath was such a big deal. But it was a big deal. It was a big deal. Others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And in verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned the blind man's parents, saying, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how does he see now? And his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who, who opened his eyes, we don't know. Uh, ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. Is that what you call plausible deniability? We, we don't know that this is beyond us. But the truth is, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, they were to be put out, kicked out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parent, for this reason, his parents said, "He is of age. Ask him." Verse twenty-four. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, "Give glory to God. You're on the stand now. Tell us the truth. We know that Jesus is a sinner." And the man answers, and you see him give a defense and probably says more than he should. But he puts his heart on the line and he says this. Look, I told you already and you didn't listen. What, what you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Do you? <laughs> Cheeky. They reviled him and they said, you, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this guy, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to him, well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Man, you can hear in his voice and in his words the, the, the confidence you can it's almost like once his eyes were open, he found, he found something solid to stand on. I have a friend who's losing his sight and, um, through glaucoma, and he, has a, he, he just got a walking stick. And it, it's, a, it's sad. Imagine for a person born blind that their entire life, not really being able to fully be confident on the ground that you walk on. To not know if your next step will turn your ankle or will step down. To not be confident of what's at your feet. To not be confident of what you're standing on. And imagine all of a sudden having your eyes, even your spiritual eyes opened, illumined so you can see the whole world clearly and see the ground where, whereof you stand. And no longer do you have to doubt your next step. You get the sense from this guy 
He's found his voice. He's found his confidence. He's found the very ground on which to stand. No longer does he have to doubt the ground. I know what that feels like, to doubt the ground. It's a terrible place to be. Alexander Hamilton, one of the founders of America, he once said, those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. If you have nothing to stand on, or if you don't know what you stand on, you'll be duped into anything. Those who stand for nothing fall for anything. I think the opposite is true as well. Those who have found something solid to stand on, the Christian faith, the gospel, will fall for nothing. Those who, found, those who have something solid to stand on will no longer doubt or be, will be uncomfortable on their feet. They won't fall for anything. The gospel is what we stand on. It's what this man stands on, I believe. And by standing on Jesus, by standing on the revelation that, that gives illumination, by standing on those things, no longer do we doubt the floor. Now we have something to stand for. He's got something to stand for. And in a court of law, he makes his defense standing on it. He's not like the guy in sign three that says, I don't know, okay, he's over there. He turns Jesus in. This man not only had his eyes open, but you can sense he's had his heart. He's had his heart opened as well. You know, when they said God is dead, when they said God is dead, we don't need God anymore because we have science. We have machines. We know that up in the sky there doesn't live a great God, but there's clouds, there's atmosphere, and then beyond that there's space, there's no gravity. We know that the heavenly bodies are not divine beings. We know that they are actually planets. We know that God is not a spirit. Actually, that's just called wind. We've scientifically explained away the world. We don't need God anymore. In a famous conversation between a, a French scholar named Laplace and Napoleon, Laplace was a man, he was an engineer, he was a, a doctor, a scholar, he he put together this scheme of the universe and he presented it to Emperor Napoleon. Of course, back in the day, who was at the center of such maps? God! But he took God out. Sun, solar system, orbiting planets. And he shows this to Napoleon and Napoleon says, tongue-in-cheek, where's God in all of this? But sir, where's God in all of this? And what does he say? The famous statement, he says, God, I have no need for that hypothesis. I don't have need for that hypothesis anymore. We don't need God. We no longer need God. Here's the thing. A hundred years later, two hundred years later, from when this class and Chinichi said God is dead, are we any better? We don't need God. Is that true? Has science filled the void in your heart? Actually, what we found is we're more lost than ever. What we found is we're more scared of the dark more than ever. We found that more than ever, we're, we don't know what we're standing on. Science has not helped to prove the ground we stand on. 
and we find ourselves trying to like grasp without faith, without the gospel, we, we find ourselves looking for something to stand on or something to hold. We'll grab the nearest man, right? Or in my case, woman, right? <laughs> or, you know, well, anyway, in this postmodern world, whichever floats your boat, we'll grab the nearest person to keep you warm. Or we'll, we'll grab the nearest ideology and make that our, our foundation. Or we'll grab, we'll grab video games or, or, I don't know, whatever it is that stimulates us in this vain hope that it will anchor us and give us something to stand on. And what does it do? It pollutes us. And we find that we're not really standing on solid ground because whatever it is that we've staked our lives on, maybe you've staked it on your job. You've staked your life on your job. That promotion until you reach a certain age and you find there's a young stag chasing your job. All of a sudden, the ground is not solid anymore. Or, I found meaning in my children. Give it 20 years, they graduate. They move out the house. And all of a sudden, the ground, vertigo. What is the meaning and the purpose of my life? I found meaning. And that sense of vertigo... That's what I want to address with an application. Identify the simplest, smallest, purest thing you believe and hold on to that for dear life. That's the way to climb out of that hole. Identify the simplest, smallest, purest belief and hold on to that for dear life. Because do you hear what this man says? How is it physiologically possible that if you were born blind, first of all, if he gave you your sight, technically, isn't the brain supposed to real? Look, I don't know, but what I know is I was blind. Now I see. The simplest, purest belief. How is it possible that you believe your parents are testifying this and it's, it's just impossible? Who is this man? Is he God? Is he? I don't know that much about theology. I don't know the proper Christological theological definitions. But right now, what I do know is I was blind yesterday. Today, I see. Come now, how can you explain this? If he's God, then that means there's more than one God. This is an offense to monotheism. This does not make sense intellectually, intellectually, theologically, philosophically. Look, leave the complicated stuff for the complicated people. All I know is I was blind, but I see now. Focus on that. Focus your lens and your eyes on that one small, pure thing, and eventually everything else will make sense. When I was studying at the New School for Social Research, I was, I was lost in, a midst, in the midst of all the voices and finally I found my anchor. And you know what the anchor was? It was the song that Paul sang this morning. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that simple anchor became my rock bottom, my ground zero, the words, Son, I love you. I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. But what do I do about Nietzsche? What do I do about Descartes? What do I do about my grades? What do I do about this? Don't, 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 don't worry about that. Just for now, soak in my love. That's enough. 
Oh, what do I do about this relationship? What do I do about my church? What do I do about my job? What do I do? What do I do? Don't worry. Jesus loves me. I love you. And that's all you need. The simplest, smallest, purest thing that has given you faith will become your rock bottom. It will become your ground zero. We're going to wrap things up here with a third and last heading. Blinding light. Blinding light. Unfortunately, the light that shines, as much as it illumines, the torch helps us to see everything. It clarifies. It transforms us. It also blinds others. It blinds the Pharisees. And they say in verse 34, third and last heading, You were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? Where did you study? Where did you get your degree? School of hard knocks. <laughs> Who are you to talk? You know nothing. And so they put him out. Some scholars, believe, some scholars believe that this John here is speaking to an actual experience. That the early Christians, as they were reading this, they were going through the same exact thing. Getting kicked out of the synagogues. Getting kicked out of the synagogues. And it's John or Jesus' way of saying, you've gotten kicked out. But welcome home. Welcome home. You know, church planting is kind of like a church. It's like a place for misfits in many ways. And that these people, they didn't fit in the synagogues. And yet, they found a sense of belonging in the Jesus community. I'm not saying established churches are not, you know, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there is this sense we're church plants, scrappy in their beginnings. We receive anyone and everyone. And there's a sense where it becomes a welcome place for misfits. That's why the gospel grows so quickly and so most effectively through church plants. Jesus heard that they put him out and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this is his words in verse 36. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? You have both seen him, Jesus says, and he is the one who is now talking with you. And he said, then, Lord, I believe. I believe. And he worshipped him. People like that might not have found it as easy to gain access to Jesus and to believe in a more traditional synagogue. But in the community of the misfit, they find their welcome and their belonging. Finish off the passage. And Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This is the blinding part. And those of the Pharisees who were with Jesus heard these things, and they said to him, Are you saying we're blind too? We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no sin. So it's almost like he's saying this blind man has no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Closing and last application. Simple as this. Always identify with the misfit. That's hard for me. That's hard for me. Sometimes I look at... I'll just stop there. But, you know, even for me it's hard. But by always identifying with the misfit, if we take seriously what Jesus is saying, that means it we are the ones who will see. Our identification with a misfit will keep us seeing. But if we say we're the ones who belong, then in a sense we, um, 
don't see yet. It's our, identi- it's our identification with those who are on the fringes. It's our identification with those who are on the edges, on the outskirts, with the misfits. That keeps us seeing.